The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So in this season of Epiphany, we focus on, you know, we're led uh, kind of by the Magi who come to Jesus when he's born and uh, as, as a picture of the, the power and the glory of the Son of God to all nations. And so we follow this uh, season and, and we talk about God's kingdom and what, what is it like and what is, what is Jesus on earth to show us. And if we could characterize in one word uh, Jesus and God and Christian, Christian faith, we may use the word love. God is love. Corey ten Boom uh, puts it like this, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Or uh, St. Augustine, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. And we know, so we know that God loves us, and we also know that we, because of this love, are called to love each other. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, a new command I give you, love one another. And so, sermon over, right? Go love people. If only it were that simple. Sometimes it is. I think sometimes loving others feels like we're sitting first class. I've never sat first class before, but I can imagine it's amazing. Uh, You know, having a seat that reclines, flying through the clear skies, seeing a beautiful sunrise out your window, and observing a beautiful landscape below. You know, loving people is easy, it's awesome, it's convenient and exciting, but then other times Maybe it feels like we're stuck in economy beside someone the size of Michael Jordan, experiencing turbulence so bad that we may use the bag in the seat in front of us. It's hard, it's constraining, it's complex, messy. See, loving people isn't always easy. Especially people who disagree with us. Especially people who are wrong, we think who don't, we don't see eye to eye with. Loving these people too, like that gets hard. Something I experienced in pastor's school. We were uh, sitting in a classroom having a conversation about the great theologian Jonathan Edwards and his view of the Bible's doctrine of predestination. And uh, I take no pride in saying that this, this seminary classroom that's full of your Canadian future church leaders Uh, learning from one of the greatest theologians to live in in North America became divided and eventually even borderline hostile to each other over this conversation. And before our professor knew what was happening, this conversation had turned from students talking to us versus them, me versus you. Love was crumpled up like a scrap piece of paper and thrown out the window It was only about who was right. And maybe 
you can identify a little bit. Maybe you struggle with this in your relationships too. Relationships with family or with friends, with colleagues or with neighbors. Have you noticed that our world is more and more being characterized by polarity, tribalism, and it begins to pull our strings I made a short list. I could have made a long list. Trump versus Biden. Liberal versus conservative. Protestants versus Catholics. Athletic people versus academic people. COVID believers versus COVID skeptics. Lockdown observers versus lockdown ignorers. Affirming versus non-affirming. I could, I could keep going probably all afternoon. Right? This, this is an issue that we wrestle with in and outside of the church where we find ourselves struggling to take hold and remain hold of our beliefs and convictions and at the same time extending ourselves to our neighbors and our friends in love. So is this just what we're wrestling with in our point in history? Is this a new us versus them issue? It turns out it's, it's been going on for a long time. The good news in this passage that Paul's writing to the Corinthians, which is what we're going to focus on, is that Paul paints us a beautiful picture of how we can begin to navigate some of these tensions with Jesus as the central ingredient. And so if we look at this passage in Corinthians, where Paul's talking about food being sacrificed to idols, we can see three things to pay attention to. What's on the surface, what's under the surface, and what's in our hearts. On the surface, under the surface, and in our hearts. So first, on the surface. 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a city called Corinth. And he had planted this church and then moved on. And uh, Corinth was an important city. It was a port city, which meant that it was the place where all the movers and the shakers lived. It was kind of like a modern-day New York City or Shanghai, or, you know, I could lump in the GTHA into this. Because of, because of this, Corinth was very worldly in its culture. Many scholars believe that this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians is, is, is being spurred on from some reports that he's hearing about how this church is struggling with issues that are in tension with the culture. The church is having a hard time living its faith out in such a worldly city. And so Paul writes this letter with a number of different concerns of his, one of them being with food sacrificed to idols. Now, many of us would probably see this as an outdated issue. I mean, we don't ever deal with food being sacrificed to idols, and you're right, but I, but I also think if we can put our our heads back into maybe what it was, what this issue was speaking about, we'll find that it has a lot of resonance for us today. Because food sacrificed or dedicated to idols was extremely common in those days, especially in a city like Corinth. Uh, Almost every type of meat that you would buy or consume would have been dedicated or sacrificed to an idol. This included the uh, club pack of ground beef you pick up at No Frills or the 
the staff lunch that is provided at your workplace or a meal that you would attend with a friend or neighbor who doesn't identify as a Christian. This, this would have been an issue that would have impacted how the Corinthians lived every day. Because of faith in Jesus, some of the Christians were saying, no, we can no longer participate in this. We can't eat food sacrificed to idols because it's wrong. We believe in one God, and we don't believe in the idols. And to eat this food is to participate in idol worship. So that was one group. Then another group was saying, we're saved by grace. We know idols aren't real. Therefore, we can, with a clear conscience, eat this food because we know where we stand. We know we're saved by grace. And so Paul is responding to this us versus them, me versus you challenge. And how does he respond? It's so fascinating. He doesn't give them a clear answer right off the top. He doesn't side with one or the other. What he's actually primarily concerned with is what he says. We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. It's so fascinating. And I think what he's saying is, if you've ever been sitting in, you know, your school classroom before, picture yourself at a desk, you know, you've got your pencil, you're writing a test, and maybe the teacher is asking the questions. And they ask you a question, you write down the answer, you know it right away, and then you look around and you see your uh, fellow students, and they're thinking, and they're hemming and hawing, and they don't know the answer. And you're starting to think, hold on a second. I got, this is so easy. How can you possibly be stuck on this one? It's so simple. I know the, I, pff, how can you still be thinking? Just write down the answer. It's so easy. And, and what begins to happen is we begin to think, oh, knowledge, having the right answer, I, this makes me, I'm so much smarter than you. How can you not? And we begin to look down at other people. And this is Paul's main concern, right? He's, he's basically saying whatever side you're on, knowledge can puff us up. It can lead us to look down on other people. It gets in the way of relationships. The main concern of Paul here isn't necessarily the right answer, but the right attitude towards those we're in community with. And what he's saying is that we can be technically right and relationally wrong. So does this mean then that Paul is saying we just sacrifice all of our convictions and, you know, just accept everyone wholesale, no questions asked? Not necessarily. I think even the letter of 1 Corinthians shows us, if we look at some of the other places where Paul's correcting the Corinthians, that Paul takes seriously the teaching of Jesus and the ethics of the kingdom. But on the surface, we can never, ever, 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 ever abandon our, our, our relationships with other people because we need to be right on something. Relationships almost seems to come first. But how come this is so hard in real life? Well, let's continue to dive deeper and look below the surface. Below the surface, we all struggle with this 
being relational and wrestling with tough issues because we all want to be right. To talk about this struggle the Corinthians were having, Paul talks about the two groups as the strong and the weak. I've, uh, uh, I've thought about this in terms of lifting weights, right? We often think of strong people as the ones who, can, who are super strong, right? They can, they can lift a whole ton of weight. The weak ones are the ones who need to get stronger. They need to do more work. They need to put in the hours in the gym. And so to Paul, when he uses the strong and the weak image, he describes the weak as the ones who always need to abide by the rules. Right? They want things in black and white. Yes and no. They're the side that says, you know, food is sacrificed to idols. We worship God. Therefore, we should not participate in this. Right, Paul? And what Paul is saying here is that um, they're actually building their relationship. They're weak because they're building their relationship more on what they can do. The right things. Being right. Than on grace. To the weak Christian, a relationship with God is something that we have to earn and not something that we simply receive. But to contrast that, the strong Christians are the ones who Paul would say are further along in their understanding of the Christian faith because they are confident, they know, and they're living out of an identity that is rooted 100% by grace. And so because of that grace, because it's not, they're not saved by works but by grace— they know they have certain freedoms. But here's the thing. By Paul's definition, the weak, needing answers, yes and no, black and white, relying on works rather than grace, and the strong, those who are confident in grace, it doesn't have anything to do with the strength of our Bible knowledge. A person can be a churchgoer for years and years and years, right? Have the, uh, know a ton about the Bible, have the Ten Commandments memorized, and still be weak. It doesn't have anything to do with what we know in our heads. It has to do with what we know in our hearts. And so if we go back to the lifting thing, it's not about how much Bible knowledge you can lift, right? Right? I've got the Ten Commandments memorized and the Apostles' Creed and the Heidelberg Catechism and I've got a 45-day streak on my Bible app. Right? It's more about how little we know we can lift, how much we rely on Christ. Paul, I think, characterizes this himself for us. Right? He sides himself with the strong Christians, the ones who are relying on grace, but in another letter, calls himself the chief of sinners. Right? Those are not opposed to each other. But notice also, and here's the striking thing, is that Paul doesn't criticize the weak Christians saying, you just need to know more, you need to work harder, you need to get stronger, you need to learn to rely on grace. That's not what Paul's saying. He puts the onus on the strong. The mature, the ones who know grace. He says to them, be careful that in the exercise of your rights, which is doing what you're free by God's grace to do, 
that it does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat with uh, what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, you sin against Christ. Tracy and I are realizing, I think, what Paul is talking about here. And that is that parenting doesn't work. Helping people grow in their faith doesn't work by standing over them and saying, you can do this, you can't do this. You can do that and can't do that. Right? We're realizing that with a two-year-old, it doesn't work to just tell him what he can and cannot do from up high. Don't eat that. Get down from that. Take that out of your mouth. Don't lay on your sister like that. Parenting works better when we can get down on his level. When we can embody a gentle posture, a careful critique, a patient response, a listening ear. It's, Paul saying, it's the responsibility of the strong to lower themselves and build up the weak. Anything else is sin. He uses very strong and clear language about this. We love to be right. But both the strong and the weak, the strong by abandoning their black and white, having a clear answer to everything, embracing the grace given to them in Christ. It's not about having an answer. It's about having grace. And, and the weak uh, and the strong giving up their high position, their freedoms for the sake of the weak. Both people have to humble themselves and get to Jesus, because only a life built on Jesus gives us the ability to be built up or to build up. And this is what we have to find in our hearts. This is the place where it starts. Because Jesus did this for you, and he did this for me. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ became a human being not to assert his rightness, but to embrace our wrongness. He abandoned his freedom to constrain himself to a human body so he could die for your sin. He lowered himself. Paul, in another letter, talks about Christ humbling himself, right? Getting down, humbling himself to become a human being. See, Jesus Christ lived the life we should have. He died the death we deserve and was raised to life to assure us of our future in him. And so a life built on this identity in Christ frees us from our need to forever be right at the cost of relationships. When we look at Jesus, we can see that we can lower ourselves. To build others up in love. But what does this 
actually look like? Scott Sauls wrote a book called A Gentle Answer. And he, in the introduction to this book, it's, this book is all about how do we get past this us versus them debate. And he tells us of a story from the NBC hit show Saturday Night Live, where uh, comedian Pete Davidson, uh, a, a very famous SNL comedian, crudely mocked Congressman-elect Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw wears an eye patch because of a, 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 an, a, an accident that happened when he was serving in the U.S. military. And, and uh, Pete Davidson, this comedian, said, yeah, 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 I know he lost his eye in the war or whatever. And in the aftermath of these offensive and rude comments, the backlash from viewers was so intense and so difficult for Davidson that he made an Instagram post where he confessed vulnerably. He said, I don't want to be on this earth anymore. I'm doing my best to stay here for you, but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. All I've ever done was try to help people. Just remember, I told you so. He's apologetic and, and, and broken. You read the regret in this post, but the striking part of this story is how the nationally humiliated Dan Crenshaw responded. Instead of joining the firing brigade and backlashing, insulting Davidson back, Crenshaw actually extended himself relationally. In the words of Paul, he lowered himself. He built Davidson up in love. And this is what it looked like. On Veterans Day weekend, the two of them came face to face on live TV to make amends. Crenshaw offered warm remarks and high praise for Davidson's father, who actually died as a firefighter responding to the September 11th terrorist attacks. And then at the end of the segment, when uh, Crenshaw, the, the humiliated, the offended Crenshaw, thought they were off camera, he whispered into his offender's ear, you're a good man. You know, maybe those words saved Pete Davidson's life. You know, Scott Sauls then characterizes the Christian posture to people who we don't agree with, people who we don't necessarily see eye to eye with. He says this. He says, because Jesus loved us at our worst, we can love others at theirs. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven us of all our wrongs, we can forgive those who have wronged us. Because Jesus lowered himself to our level, we can lower ourselves to others. It's what he taught us to do. This is what students, my student colleagues missed in our uh, seminary classroom when we turned on each other because we wanted to convince each other of how right we were. We forgot that because of Jesus, we can actually be both right and relational, convicted and open, patient enough with one another to build each other up. It's my prayer that this is for us at First Hamilton, that we would remember our call as those who have made promises to each other 
to build each other up. These are part of our baptismal vows. Let's remember that we do this by listening. We do this by respecting. Even in, in, when we don't see eye to eye with others, we do this because Jesus Christ did this for us. Let's pray. Father, as we look out at a world that is so polarized and is so hard to be in relationship with people who don't believe in the same things we do, we pray that, that the gospel would sink into our hearts and that it would um, give us the, the power to um, do what many people are struggling to do, to hold fast to our convictions and yet extend in genuine love to others. Lord, give us your spirit that um, gives us patience when we feel uh, impatient with, with others, when we feel like we need to get an answer or we need to arrive at some place. Lord, give us, um, give us the capacity to be able to listen to other people and hear them fully. Lord, help us to love others as you would have us love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.